At Kelly Companies, it is no secret that they believe in the power of people. In an effort to help their Keelians get to know each other a little bit better, they decided to launch the Who Do You Know campaign. The goal was simple. Keelians were encouraged to have a conversation with someone outside of their circle. That's it. These conversations, however, have brought people together and farthered their world-class culture. Shout out to the Keelians who have made an effort to have meaningful conversations with new friends. You can learn more about those conversations, about those amazing friends, by visiting them online at keelycompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. We are in for a delicious treat in today's episode. Let me tell you why. Laura Colder is perhaps best known for her James Beard award-winning television series, French Food at Home. It's an internationally known show. It's awesome. You'd enjoy it. As a passionate cook, a homemaker, a hostess, Laura is enthusiastic of all things Ardez Vivez, or the French idea of getting the most out of everyday life by putting care and focus and love into everything that we do. Whether it's setting a lovely table, putting a bit extra into making a sandwich, or just walking a little taller in the street, there are moments every single day that we can seize upon to elevate life. Today, during this episode, Laura is going to reveal how cooking and feeding and homekeeping can magically restore balance and calm in our out-of-sync, busy lives. And yet, my friends, today's conversation is far more than hosting your next meaningful dinner party. It's about how to live each day with a desire and a determination to turn the ordinary stuff of life into something beautiful. So without further ado, sit up straight, shoulders back, elbows off the table, grab your favorite Live Inspired notebooks and get ready to dine with me and my dear friend. You ready? Her name is Laura Colder. Laura, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you, John. I feel like I'm already uh, at table with a friend right now. So when you have an opportunity of introducing yourself, when it's not some long-winded rambling podcaster introducing you, but when you introduce yourself to a new friend, how do you introduce yourself? I love when I get introduced to someone and I don't have to say anything about career. I love just being open. I'm Laura. And then where are you from? And people, gradually people can get to know you, but the short answer for the purposes here is that I've I've been a longtime cookbook writer and I used to have a show called French Food at Home. I lived for 10 years in France and I write two books ago was one called The Inviting Life. And it was where I was starting to move into thinking about how a dinner party actually is more about how to live life. And my latest book is called Kitchen Bliss, Musings on Food and Happiness. And that is, has taken me even further, almost more right. away from food and into, into how to live. So I would never answer that at a dinner party, but for you. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. And I would imagine when 
when new friends have you over for a dinner party, they're probably anxious. Like, are the forks on the right side? Is the wine glass on the right side? Am I plating this food appropriately? So we'll, we'll talk about plating food, maybe. We'll talk about the dinner table, certainly. But I want to go back into your childhood a little bit, understand a little bit of the Genesis story of what led to you growing into the woman you are and having the impact and reach that you do. So way back now to Kingston Peninsula, <laughs> understand that that is where you grew up. I've been online checking it out. It looks like an idyllic place. Talk about where you grew up. Well, I grew up in a very, when I say very rural part of the country, it's, it's a little less so now, but it was really in the middle of nowhere. And on a peninsula that's between two magnificent rivers, and it's accessible by cable ferry on three sides. So at school, they used to call us the boat people because we had to take a ferry to get to school. And when I was really small, my mother stayed home with us. So we had the rivers and the trees. We were, we were wild and free. Um, my grandfather had a lot of vegetable gardens, so there was always food production. And, and um, I think now what a privileged childhood for the freedom that mm -hmm. we had. You know, you sort of go out the door and you, you come home when you want. And it was so safe. And we had freedom to play. It wasn't structured. And there were no cell phones. Yes, sounds lovely. And, and I don't know if we named the country. You grew up in Canada. Yes. I think in New Brunswick, which mm -hmm. ironically, if this is right, you're south of some parts of Maine. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, wait, no. Well, we go south to Maine. It goes up the side of Quebec, though. And New Brunswick, too, though. You're right. Yeah. We're very, okay. it's very attached. It's very much like New England, like a part of New England. You, you mentioned your mom. I want to come back to her in a moment. But but first, your father. Talk about what you learned about whether it's cooking or life from your dad. Well, my father was, he was a English teacher, very spiritual guy too, and someone not afraid to try things. And now he's a he's an older man now, but he's he's doing things like hooking rugs, and he's got a garden, and he's got a he's got he calls his dependents, which is a box of worms, and he gets <sighs> the worm castings for his potatoes, and he's just I love the fact that he's just never stopped doing things he's very fun to watch and wow. so never tiring of life but I love the fact that he's developed this sort of very earthy creative side of himself and a spiritual side of himself at the same time mm. and, and your mother I know she had a profound effect on you as a little girl and, and as a woman talk well, about how your mother in fact impacted the way you show up in a kitchen and in the world my mother never did anything that anyone else was doing. She was never a follower ever of any trend. She was never, she held no jealousies. She wasn't someone who, you know, looked to see what other people were doing. She really just lived her life. And I love, I love that about her. She was a historian, is one, and um, was very co connected to land and place and people. And she, she wrote a book about the place. She interviewed old people a lot. Um, and she was a real community builder. So there are many ways you can do that. She had her way, but I think I learned that everyone has a story worth listening to. Mm. Well, part of your story involves the kitchen. And part of that kitchen growing up involves seven doorways. Growing up in St. Louis, Missouri, three doorways. And that was plenty. Somehow in your little <laughs> rural community, you had seven. Talk about the kitchen you grew up in. It was It was chaotic. Because, and it was in one of these, you know, houses that probably got banged together by a bunch of guys who lived 
you know, around. It's an old, it's like a Victorian house, but I don't think it was built with a plan. <laughs> and it drove me crazy. And actually one of the reasons, well, there one reason I was attracted to the kitchen was because everything was happening there. And when you're a kid, you want to do things, you want to be involved. So because everyone was always cooking, that was where the fun was. But it also made me crazy. The whole house made me crazy growing up. And I was constantly trying to find ways to impose order or create order if I could. It was a warm and happy, loving house, but every house is, is messy and it's every family has its own stuff, as it were, yeah. and baggage. And I... Uh, I think that's what always inspired me about living was the fact that I had to figure out ways to make do with things because it, it wasn't all perfect. The surrounding area seems perfect and the cable cars and the ferries and the geography. It really is just an idyllic little upbringing. Yeah, it's pretty pristine and beautiful, but yeah. But it's not always perfect. And eventually you leave it. You had West for university. What were you studying? I went to Montreal first. I was studying French. I moved around a bit, then I was in liberal arts. Later I did linguistics. I was interested in languages and in French culture. And what did I finish with? Uh, <laughs> then I went to the London School of Economics so long ago. And then I did social and organizational psychology in London. Um, and after all that, I decided I wanted to run away to cooking school. So what do you say to someone about what to do with their lives? Because <laughs> I learned well, to read and write, I guess. <laughs> you know, what your dad is teaching you today as an older gentleman is maybe something he taught you when you were young, which was don't stop growing. Don't become mm -hmm. complacent. K keep kicking the tires of new things and see if you fall in love with it. But it, it seems to me as I read about you online and studied you and did listen to a lot of your podcasts and shows that you explored a lot. You were trying to figure out what mattered most and uh, until you found it, you kept pursuing it. That's what, true, what? and I did. I'm also in sort of second, uh, second career in a way because after television, television. One of the, one of the, I suppose a good thing about it and a not so good thing is that it defines you. And I had this show called French Food at Home, so I was French girl, and no one would talk to me about anything except French food. And then I left France, and it was still. I just thought, I don't, I don't want to talk about this anymore. I want to talk right. about something else, but you can you can get stuck. And I think um, in any story we tell ourselves about ourselves uh, or our lives, we can get stuck in it. And especially now, you know, midlife, I'm entering a new phase and I realize, oh, I can actually, I can, the future isn't written. I get to write it. Mm. Well, before you do, I want to take a, a couple reads from the previous pages, including French cuisine. You, you traveled around the world. You found yourself in the UK. I know you traveled to India for a while with one of your friends. What ultimately brought you to France? And what was it about the French cuisine that you found so uh, attractive? Well, so New Brunswick is, is happens to be a bilingual province in Canada. So it's English and French. Quebec is obviously French. So I had had French around me growing up and gone to school in French too. So I could speak it. So it was a kind of a natural place to go. But I also think there's something in French culture. I don't know if your audience is that familiar with it, but they have, contrary to my, the culture I grew up in, which is Anglo-Saxon Protestant culture, where 
things like how you get dressed or how you set the table or how you whatever are considered frivolous. There's not really an appreciation for things like beauty for beauty's sake. And in France, all of that is super important. And I felt like when I got there, I thought at last someone understands me. At last I'm surrounded by people who think we have to do this right. We have right. to make this beautiful. We have to take the time to put the things into daily life. They call it art de vivre, the art of living. And we don't have that. So my value system, which was just in me, aligned so much with that. So that was the attraction. And in a way, if I can say I brought anything back, it's not even what you eat so much as how. Mm. So tell me what the difference is. Well, the French, they have art de la table, art, the art of the table, where they really take care to set a table beautifully, where they, you select the ingredients carefully. You consider what you wear when you come to a table. You consider manners and behavior because you want to make other people comfortable and you want to honor the act of eating as much as you can. And I mean, in North America in general, we're we're pretty weak on that front. I mean, drive through, eat while doing other things, slapping things together. There's quite, you know, a lot of food TV shows, the talk around food is quite rough. Yeah. There are clocks on the walls, it's speedy. People are slapping things down, calling a roast this puppy and stuff like that. I just, I think, no, 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 no. We have to do it differently. Well, you had a, a culture who taught you about the ability of doing it differently. And you had a great teacher who also showed you how to do it differently. Anne Willan. Yes. Actually, Anne Willan is, is English, and but she had a chateau in Burgundy and she loved French food, probably for the same reasons. Um, a lot of people who end up in France have that. It's like you've got a nose, you can sniff out where you're going to fit in and that's the place. So she one thing being in the country was wonderful and what i love too about a big country house is that you know i grew up in the country but it was country country and in her house it was i like the juxtaposition of kind of grandness and earthiness instead mm. of being all grand or all earthy it's nice to have them both together like an example would be instead of having a picnic and throwing a some kind of tent blanket on the ground and getting plastic cups. You set up outside in nature, in the earth, a nice table and you take glasses and cutlery and nice chairs. And so you, I love that mix, you know? And- Stability and, and wild. <laughs> and Anne helped expose you to it? Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's French country life, but she was certainly a guide. She was also a perfectionist. I mean, she really made you work hard and you know you weren't allowed to you weren't allowed to do anything in a sloppy way if you didn't do something right you had to go and fix it and I think so now I wonder why does that matter well it's like do you make your bed properly or do you just throw the sheet up it, it affects how you feel the way you do things it affects your how satisfied you feel it affects you know, if you put on a wrinkled shirt, how do you feel? You know, these little tiny things make such a difference to our morale. Why do you think that is? Why do you think the way a bed looks, a way a shirt fits, the way a table's set? Why do you think that matters? 
I think it's, uh, well, it's partly, one thing I say about the table is it's it's not just a place where you sit to eat. It's a really a reflection of what you think you're worth, how you think you deserve to be treated, um, the way you come to it and present it as a way you tell other people how you expect them to behave. And so I think if you're, and that could be true, you could say that about your clothes, you could say that about your front lawn. This is a reflection of you. So and especially with the table, you're looking in that reflection three times a day. What do you want it to say? And not just because what it says to other people, but because of what it says to you, your brain that's that's listening to it. You want it to tell you you're great and you're worthy and you're lovely. <laughs> As a family, we rarely in America is this common, but this is something we do. We have dinner together almost every night. Certainly when I'm in town, we do. And uh, when I'm out of town without me, my wife and kids will have dinner, typically either at a little kitchen table or at the island. On big events, though, we go into the dining room and we get out the china and we set the table and we bring in water, even for those of us who don't drink it. And, and it's really done right. And I always leave those meals feeling far different than I do the typical meals. Laura, why is that? Well, it's funny. The other night, it was actually New Year's Day at the time, friends of ours invited us to dinner. And then we thought, okay, good. This is the wind down time. It's They're good friends. It's just the four of us. And then about half a day before we went, they said, black tie. So I thought, this is hilarious. So we got totally dolled up and walked over to the neighbor's house. And she had the table set to the nines and... I mean, we never do that. And we felt, we all felt so fantastic. It was just such a pleasure, especially after these years of COVID to dress up. And I, I, we came away feeling it was very special. I mean, obviously you're not going to do that every night, but <laughs> that's why it's so, that's, that's why it's so special. You think, yeah, I'm, I dress up. Okay. <laughs> you know, it's dignifying, it's edifying. It, it lifts you up. It certainly does. And it certainly did for us as we celebrated over the holidays around this beautiful table. Yeah. And it bonds too. I mean, the fact that you eat together as a family is so great. And you're for you, but for your kids too, what a thing to, you know, that's, it's, it's not so common. I don't think anymore, or I'm told it isn't, but um, it's great for everything. Communication, literacy, bonding, knowing what's Knowing what's going on with someone, if you sit down to eat with something, you're going to get a pretty good idea if they're okay or not. Mm. Mm. You have written and you've shared, I'm sure, on your YouTube channel about how the French don't race through dinner and how they engage their children in every aspect of it, from mm -hmm. shopping to preparing to setting out the table to being part of the conversation. Imagine that. They're yeah. even part of the conversation. And the conversation could go on for hours. Talk, talk about what it is that they have in their culture and their society and their value system that maybe we've lost sight of in ours. Well, the, yeah, with my friend's children, the kids have always been there from the youngest age and they don't give, you know, it's not that the kids get macaroni and butter while everyone else eats snails. The kids eat everything, which is fantastic and they take an interest in it but you know I think when you make a table a really fun exciting delicious place to be people want to sit there but if it's unpleasant it's hard to get people to stay so I just think 
you know, it's maybe here it's more you you go eat a quick dinner and then you go to the theater, you go to the movie, whatever. There, dinner is the evening. It's the whole mm. evening. I mean, that's what I do. I mean, I don't, I don't know how much people do that here, but dinner is the whole event. So it can be ours. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> so you studied this. I'm sure your father, as you're going all around the world with these various studies, might have been wondering, what in the world is my daughter up to next? Eventually, you come home and you step into television. Would you just tell the story of how that happened in the first place? Well, that came, how did that happen? I came, I'd written my first book, little book called French Food at Home. And then I thought, oh, what should I do next? And a friend said, you should do television. And I said, oh yeah, like what, I'm supposed to call Disney. And uh, like to me, that was just not even on my radar as something to do. And she said, oh, I know someone who knows someone who knows someone, send her your book. So I did and met this woman, producer. And a year later, we were having a rap party on a, I mean, it was so fast. And we that was for 26 episodes too, by the way, a huge season. Yeah. We did we did almost 100 shows. Back then, what were you trying to educate the audience on? Because I, I think it's evolved as you've grown. Now it's not um, merely about plating meals. I don't think it's no. more than that. What was then it, it was then? about French food. Then it was, I want to show you that there is a... There is a cuisine, but it was also all the details around it that it, that everything mattered. The shopping mattered, setting the table mattered, cooking mattered, and also French food had this reputation of being very complicated, and it isn't. I mean, I don't know why it got that reputation. I think because it it was the country and the culture that exported sort of three star dining before anybody else was doing it, but. It's got a peasant culture just like everywhere else and very simple things. So I was trying to show that. And um, I still love that when I go back to France. I still find the evolution of the food scene there, especially in Paris, really exciting always and inspiring. And um, But yeah, I think it's that, that approach to life I, I was always wanting to share and now even more. When did you realize that you might end up succeeding in front of the camera? Because, you know, as you're washing dishes, I know you did that for a while. It's a leap to imagine one day I'll be one of the bigger shows in the world. And people, well, I don't know that I was, a, I was, I don't think I was, a, I was on Food Network. I was on, I was on air around the world. Yeah. But it was a, and it was a show that was in time. Your television sort of went a bit wonky after that era. Yeah. People stopped doing a lot of, cooking shows and there was more competition. So, I mean, I left it and went back to France, I guess. I'm trying to remember, but um, I, well, I knew I, I was good at it. I won a James Beard award. So that told me. <laughs> a, a lot of the reviews as I was preparing for today were claiming we miss it. We miss those shows. We miss her. We miss that, that time of fun, approachable approach to preparing delicious food for your family. Do you know what people have said to me more than anything else about that show is they said it was an oasis and yeah. it calmed me down. And I liked, and I think a lot of, well, not a lot, of, maybe a lot of cooking shows, but certain cooking shows and certainly mine, I don't even know. I don't know if how much people cooked what I showed or not. I mean, I mean, I guess they did, but I think they, people have a need to be with a comforting presence in a kitchen and just to sit there and watch. And 
there's not a lot of that now. And I think people are, are really quite hungry for it, including kids. Just let me be in a place where things are calm, where I can forget the outside world, where I'm going to spend time with someone who makes me feel good, who's making nice food, where I might meet new people or see a new idea. It's just that that escape, I think, is what people miss. So I'm about to butcher some French. So get, get ready to uh, <laughs> to correct me. Dinner chez moi. Did I say it chez right? Moi. Chez moi. Chez moi. Yeah. The fine art of feeding friends. You wrote that book 11 years ago. I think it came out. What, what was the goal of writing that book? Well, that was a bit all over the map. I wanted to do a dinner party book. So it's menu based because I wanted to make it easy to gather. And yeah, that was a book of gathering. And how how do you feed your friends? How do you, what way, I guess maybe it was kind of developing how I would entertain, what kind of host I wanted to be. Um, it's a cookbook, you yeah. know, just it's sort of crammed full of recipes, but it's also a lot of writing. And I mean, I sort of, it, I write recipe books, but there were there are a lot of writing around the recipes, which is why I think I've come around to where I am now, where people said, get the recipes out of the way and just talk. <laughs> so as I read your books, a lot of them are really lesser on the recipe, although, of course, that's part and parcel of the book and more around the story. So the story we tell ourselves around dinner parties and inviting friends over, what, what do you think we get wrong about dinner parties and inviting friends over? Well, I have a lot of friends who get dinner parties very right. Um, but they're wrong when they're stiff or they're wrong when you get a group of people that isn't going to mesh or when when I think it's too controlled. Uh, that's no fun. But I'm lucky. I have a lot of friends who not only cook very well, but are very relaxed and who also love debate. So yeah. a lot of them are European. So they're, they're in, they don't... You know how we're very correct about the things we say on this continent these days. It's people don't, you can't have a great conversation if you're afraid to speak. So mm. I love these dinner parties where it's just everyone agrees to disagree if necessary about things and be open to listening to what other people have to say and to just let loose. We love that. Lauren, one of your books, and it might be the most recent, you wrote about a diplomat whose budget for hosting dinner parties was canceled. And he could still host at the Marriott or, you know, the local Italian restaurant, but he could no longer host these in his house. And that fact crushed him. Well, it was severely reduced his budget anyway, he told me. And he said it was catastrophic because when you're having dinner with people at home, you get, it's very intimate, you know, yeah. to let someone into your house, to let them see how you do things, to cook food that you've made to to see how you live, to see how you eat. It's it's very bonding very quickly. And there aren't other ears and eyes. But in a restaurant, you almost get your host role taken away from you because someone else is serving. Someone else is, yes, you're the host if you're paying, but it's just not the same. He said he just, he couldn't get as close to people as quickly. And so before, when he could entertain at home a lot, he could just pick up the phone right away and call anyone. And after that, it was a lot harder. So there's a lot of power in, you know, business lunches now people, I don't even know if people do business lunches anymore, but people, businessmen used to invite people to each other's homes. And I think the trust factor would have built up much more quickly 
the dotted line so you can help me fill, fill it in a little bit is what does that mean for the rest of us? We may not be diplomats or business people, but we're all human beings trying to connect with those in our neighborhood and communities. How might having friends over for dinner help do that? I, I just think it breaks down walls so almost like nothing else. You think, I mean, who who do you eat with? Think You can think of a lot of people you know who you may even be um, maybe not close to in some ways in your neighborhood, people who you help out or who you do business with or who, who have a role in your life, but you wouldn't dine with them because you're just, they're not for whatever reason. There's some people who we will eat with and some people who we don't eat with. Mm. So I'm not say eat with everybody, but with when you want to have a close relationship, that's that's one sure way of knowing you have it. And I, maintain I know. it too. Say that again. And sorry, of, of maintaining it too. Maintaining the close ties with people. There's no better way. When you're seated next to someone you don't know well at a dinner party, you've, in fact, in the way you introduced yourself earlier, you hinted at it, but now I'd like you to clarify. You say it's important not to talk about work. At first, don't ask, what do you do? Why is it important not to begin with that layup question? What do you do? Well, yeah, it's it's a it's a very not done. For example, in France, it's considered very rude. And I I'll tell you a story about how I knew this. I knew you're not supposed to ask, but because sometimes you just can't resist. But it's certainly not a question you ask right away. But I was at a dinner, and I it was one of those outdoor village dinners, so it was really everyone, and that's a that's a great bonding thing. But so I'm sitting beside this guy and he's talking about art and he's talking about classical music and he's talking about a trip here and a trip there. And I just, the guy was fascinated and I finally couldn't contain myself. And I said, what do you do? And he was the garbage man. And I felt very silly because if I'd said to him right at the beginning, what do you do? And he'd said garbage man, I would have thought, oh, well, we're not gonna have very much in common. Well, what a thing to think, and I would have been wrong. So I think sometimes, in a way, you might as well ask someone, what do you make? You know, how much do you earn a year? It's a really, it's like you're trying to find a status so that you can decide whether they belong in your world or not. Whereas if you don't ask that question, you have a chance to find out what their interests are and where they've been in the world and what they're going through. It, it gives you much more leeway. What are some ideas on how if we have eight or so people around a table that we can have a, a collective meaningful conversation? It, it seems sometimes one person to your left or right might hijack the entire conversation. How, how do Don't you collectively <laughs> engage in a really robust, playful, fun, meaningful conversation? Well, I think you have to, you know, you have to invite obviously like-minded people. Eight can be difficult. Uh, actually, six is um Eight things can start, there's a number where it starts to break up. It's a bit of a party, so the conversation will be a little more superficial just because of the nature, the bigger the room gets, the, the, the more superficial it becomes. But four and six, six is ideal if you want a bit of conviviality. If you really, really want to get close to people, four is great. But if you're not sure if you do, then don't invite four because you're stuck with them, you know? <laughs> I wrote an essay about those, the numbers, like it's, crazy how 
it actually makes a big difference how many people are around a table. But yeah, I think six is six is very good because the conversation can be just one and you really can't get away with not participating. So I, I would imagine as our listeners are tuning in from France and around the world to our conversation that many are thinking, this is lovely. What a great idea. Having dinner parties, having another couple over or maybe even eight, hmm. but I don't have time. Do these people having this conversation have any idea how busy we are? So for those of us listening right now, thinking we don't have time to sit around the table, let alone have friends over, what would you say to them? I would say, how many hours do you spend on social media? <laughs> no, that's one thing. I think we prioritize. I don't think, look, I give a lot of, I, I and my group of friends, we, we get together because dinner parties, are, is my, that is my social life. I'm not at the movie theater. I'm not at the sports arena just because that, that's my interest is at the table. It just happens. That's my personal choice. But I think, you know, you don't entertain as much as maybe as someone like, like me, but once a month, I mean, you don't have to make things complicated. You can do something very simple and spend an afternoon, but it's so enriching. It's like, whenever I go to the theater, I think, why don't I go more often? It's so great. But I always think I don't have time for that. Then I do it and I think, wow, my mind is on fire. So it's good to do it just to remind yourself of how mm. great it is. Well, speaking of how great it is, where I met a person who seems awfully great was on your YouTube channel. His name is Peter. Uh, <laughs> he just seems awesome. Tell me tell me where you met Peter and what it was about him you fell in love with. Uh, yes, Peter is my husband, who I've now dragged onto YouTube. Um, <laughs> He's also a writer. He's a, he's a journalist. And I met him because he had seen my show and I had moved back. Well, briefly from, I, I decided to come to Toronto from France for six months. I was taking a time out. I thought, I just need to not think about career. I need to figure out my own life. I'm taking six months. I was lucky to be able to do that. And I took yoga and art classes and read books and thought I would do this and that. Anyway, within the first week, I had an email from this guy who said, uh, I hear you've moved to town. Can I take you to lunch? So I said, okay. After 10 minutes, by the way, I just, I'm not one of these people who waits forever to respond to an email. I just respond. So he thought that was fast. I don't know what that looked like, but anyway, we went to lunch and that was, the rest was history. And one of the most bonding things we do is cook together every night it's so sweet it, it, it seems as if you're so confident in yourself that you can truly cheer for the other oh yeah definitely there's no there's no competition anyway he's outdone me now he's been making through the pandemic he was making butter and bread and smoking bacon and doing and i say i haven't cooked a piece of meat in eight years because i don't have to anymore <laughs> I earlier today you spoke some beautiful French a moment ago. It's the celebration of the little things in life. I forget the translation. Yeah. L'art de vivre is the art of living is what they the call art, it. The art of living. Mm. Uh, and frequently as we live, we view the stuff we're doing as chores. So I'm just going to take you through a few questions that some of us might feel as a chore and you view as an art project to celebrate and to do well. Uh, so cleaning. What a chore. And yet you have a different take on even cleaning your own house. Talk yeah, about well, that. This is, 
this is new to me and I don't know, I'm having a shift in my whole mindset about everything, but um, I hope this doesn't sound too woo woo, but I feel, you know, you said, what's the difference between an unmade bed and a, and a made bed? You feel a kind of positive reaction or a negative reaction and you feel negativity. So that's energy. So when I see a space in the house that makes me feel bad, then to go clean it or fix it up, you can look at yourself as almost like a healer going around making everything better. How do you look after this thing? It's something that shows neglect, needs taking care of, and you can take care of it and make it better. And it's it's actually, it's very satisfying. It can feel very empowering. There's something I can fix. And so I fixed it. And I think starting with these small things, you know, a lot of what you talk about, you talk about change the world, shop with yourself. Well, you can start with Part of starting with yourself is starting with every little thing around you. Mm. Polish your shoes, straighten out your desk. You deserve to have a, a good desk. You know, so I, and the, the French, I think a lot of it's in the detail, you know, you can just, uh, I don't know, when you, when you make something lovely that isn't by just doing a tiny thing, show care, that's it. Mm. We've talked about this briefly, but we're going to come at it again, setting the table. Most of us view the table as the necessary end to get the food into our mouth so we can get on with our days and lives. But you remind us to slow down and really embrace the gift of setting the table. Why? Well, you know what? I, you said it, but slowing down makes something less of a chore. I'm trying to think what I was doing the other day, and I thought, I didn't, you know, it's not that I think, oh, goody, I have to do the laundry, but take folding I don't like folding laundry, but when I, when I don't feel like folding laundry, I take it and I do it even more slowly. And when you do it really slowly, it becomes actually, you get involved in it. And then it becomes, you get kind of fussy about the angle you put the sleeve at on the shirt and it becomes more fun. Really, <laughs> I don't know what to say. It's the slowing down. And I, and I think, uh, you know, whipping through something, because why whip through something in a negative uh, attitude when you can slow, slow down and, and, and be positive about it? Like we're always rushing through life what, to get to what? Slow down, make it, make it pleasure. So Laura, speaking of racing versus slowing, if you were to come to our house tonight uh, and I'd have to prepare my kids ahead of time for it, you would find that, yeah, indeed, we'll be seated around the island eating, but it's a race. It is a race yeah. to uh, quickly get the chicken into our bellies, the plates into the sink, the plates eventually into the dishwasher, and then back into life. Tell, tell us not only why it matters to slow down to really savor that meal, but but give us some ideas on how to. Because I think in, in the Western world, we are sprinting. Yeah. Well... You know, I don't have children, and so I don't I don't have the experience of this after school driving and picking kids up and and all of that. So I understand that that's also commuting and all this stuff is has to be really hard for people. But there must be ways that we can carve out time for ourselves and prioritize. Like sometimes I myself, I'll look through a day, what did I do? What did I spend it on? And I can find chunks all over the place where I, didn't use my time in a productive or enriching way. So, but even if you're, even if you have to do things 
I mean, is an hour a reasonable amount of time? Well, if you're asking me, I saw one research that said a child and a parent look into one another's eyes for less than 30 seconds a day on average. This is going to have terrifying consequences down the road. Without a doubt. It doesn't mean we're not in the same room or driving to school or dropping them off at the bus or a million other things, but eye to eye, belly to belly, no distractions, less than 30 seconds, letting that little human being know that they are loved and they are safe. Yeah. That, that will have terrible consequences. And that they're there. Right. That they're there. I mean, I just, this is talk about terrifying. Think of uh, mothers feeding their babies and they're staring at the phone when they're doing it. And that connection is just not being made. So right. here's another reason. Maybe you can, you have to think of how many <laughs> dining in its own way is multitasking is the wrong word, but you're not just accomplishing feeding yourself. There's a lot more value in it. You're hearing your child, you're connecting to your, your wife and hearing about her day. You're letting people know where you're at, you're discussing problems. It's good. For, it's it's good for people's vocabulary, literacy, ideas, brains, everything, and the family bonding. So if it's maybe people could give more time to it if they realize they're doing way more than just feeding their bellies. Mm. We've spoken a lot about spouses and partners and children and friends and dinner parties. For those doing life by themselves, though, many of our listeners cook for themselves or they bring home paper paper packages with food inside of it for themselves. Help them, help those beautiful listeners understand how to uh, how to make sure that they are part of a dinner table even larger than themselves. So how, how can they break through that veil sometimes where it feels completely isolated? I think it is uh, challenging to want to cook when it's just yourself. I think it's really essential to you don't have to spend obviously an hour talking to yourself at a dinner table if it's just you. But if you've ordered takeout even, do not eat it out of a box. Set yourself a place. You deserve it. Make it beautiful. And sit down. It's going to take you, what, 20, not more than 20 minutes to eat whatever it is you have. And you'll look at something beautiful. Again, it's that message you're giving to yourself. And um, they say, some say, that the way that we eat um, and the attitude we're in while we're eating affects digestion. It actually affects the way food behaves in our system. And so you don't want to just gulp it down in a grouchy mood or feeling lonely. Really appreciate it. It's a life too. Remember, treat it the way you want to be treated, <laughs> minus <laughs> the teeth. Um, no, I think I, I think I always used to cook for myself, but I, that's because I like... I want my own food. Um, I want to have control over it, what it is. But um, yeah, even if you're alone, treat yourself like you want to be treated in the world. Mm. So I have two questions for you as we get ready to move into the Live Inspired 7. The first is for that person by themselves or for John O'Leary, who's asking you for very selfish reasons. Help me create an awesome menu for our next dinner party. Because one way to break through that that sense of isolation is to invite others into your life. And well, then once they arrive, for them, for them to receive something beautiful, uh, both on the stove and eventually in their bellies and hearts. So uh, well, you, you I now just, get to design the, the O'Leary menu for our next dinner party. What should we have? Well, you should uh, follow me on Substack, which is lauracalder.substack.com, because I've just started it. And next week, I'm actually putting up 
a dinner party menu. So I thought I would do that on my Substack occasionally, make a kind of a supper club thing. So awesome. I'll test the menu multiple times. And um, do you want to hear what it is? I have it right of here. Of course, we want the preview. Starting with Tokyo Mules, which is a, that's an alcoholic drink. I don't know if you drink alcohol, but it's got cucumber juice in it and ginger beer. And um, so that's first. Then there's a sushi salad that you eat with nori that's got, um, you could have salmon roll on a cucumber radish. Is this a, very easy, takes no time. Well, okay, and, I got to stop you there, Laura. This already sounds incredibly complicated. No, it's so easy. Then sesame crusted salmon on a platter of <laughs> greens and then little tiny chocolates. It's all there. So easy. How much time should Beth O'Leary and her husband, John, expect to be uh, preparing this? This would take in really in all an hour. Really? I mean, in total, you have to go get the groceries, of course, and you're not going to do it all in one hour. You're going to make the chocolates in the morning. But I mean, the salmon takes five minutes. The greens take 10. The sushi salad takes 20. Totally doable. We got this. Well, to, to the lucky guests listening right now, uh, you're in for a treat. Get ready for your cucumber alcohol drink. And then take a seat because we're going to serve you something delicious. So my final question to you was this. You recently wrote a book. It's called Kitchen Bliss. And in that, I forget which chapter, but you talk about your dream kitchen. And you've traveled the world. You've been in the finest kitchens in the world. So I was assuming as I stepped into that chapter, I'd hear about the wolf or the vike, you know, the sub-zier, you know, how many square feet it needs to be. And that wasn't at all what you were writing about when you were talking about your, your dream kitchen. So what is your dream kitchen and how can we build one in our own lives? Well, I, I, I should think about a dream kitchen because I've cooked in a lot of really bizarre ones, some good ones too, but some really terrible ones. But I realized that it's the way, it's more about how I want myself to feel in the kitchen and in my life. I want to feel serene. I want to I want to move gracefully and I want to do things with elegance because I feel calm and centered in myself. So I obviously the room itself would have to be a, a calm space, but a lot of it is how we ourselves are going to be because I don't know if you've ever cooked when you were in a bad mood, but it <laughs> definitely- Turn the heat up even hotter and let's get this over with, yes. It, it, it doesn't taste good. It never works out. But right. when in the right state of mind, you cook beautiful things and yeah, lovely things come out of your kitchen. So that's my goal, really the way I handle things, the way I approach everything and to be grateful for everything too, because um, you realize how lucky you are if you can eat every day and sit at a table and be with people you love. You're, it's, uh, that's the life, that's bliss. Laura Colder, we have seven questions that we ask all of those who join us at the table. They're called the Live Inspired Seven. So grab your favorite seat next to me and pull it up nice and close. Put your napkin in your lap, Laura, and here we go. Okay. Question number one, what is the most impactful or inspirational book you've ever read? I'm reading one right now, actually. I'm reading The Myth of Normal by Gabor Mate. It's how the things that happen to us and our thoughts and our mind affect our physical health. And um, it's really made me feel a lot more compassionate about other people's health journeys and to realize how much outside the 
physiological um, impacts our health. The myth of normal. Awesome. The myth of normal. What's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little girl growing up on the, in that rural kitchen that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? Fearlessness. Huh. <laughs> I'd try anything. <laughs> uh, I, I get the sense that you still are relatively fearless. So talk about that. Uh, I'd like to be, I think I've lost a bit of my, maybe it's marriage. I feel a little less, <laughs> I want I to be Peter. adventurous, a little more adventurous and a little more, a little bit braver, maybe. It's in me, but I just maybe have to get a little bit back. If your home caught fire and Peter is out safely and you have an opportunity of running in and grabbing one item, one thing that really matters to you, what would you grab? My silver. <laughs> I have silver, silver cutlery. My silver because that's been such an important part of life at the table. And uh, I bought it. I use it every day. It's just cutlery. But it's for me, it was a way of raising up the everyday out of the mundane into something a little better and saying that every day deserves to be a little better. So I would mm. miss it. So I told you earlier about the dinner table and how rarely we are in the dining room and how when we do so, we set it brilliantly. And it was this last time over the Christmas holidays that we set the real silver around this table. My kids were amazed at how heavy these pieces were and the value. We told them how much, you know, the value of these things. Why do you think we tuck those things away and only use them every other month? Well, I think it's okay to have something that's special because um, I use it because it just happens to be what I to be what I have, and I I think I like the idea of making every day a little nicer. But then, you know, you need to have somewhere to go so so that when something special, I think it's okay to bring things out once in a while. Okay. Also, I don't have a dishwasher; I wash everything by hand, but no one else is going to do that. So. You have to My wife that. and I do, uh, and I've read that you are a champion dishwasher. We'll talk about that in the next podcast. Okay. <laughs> if you could sit on a bench and have a long, awesome conversation with anybody, living or deceased, who would you like seated next to you? The queen. Imagine what, what she'd have to say. <laughs> <laughs> would you risk serving her dinner? Sure. Why not? What would you serve <laughs> the queen? Oh boy, what would I serve the queen? Oh, something traditional, <laughs> lamb chops and gratin dauphinois and a piece of walnut cake or something, something simple in French. Laura, what's the best advice you've ever received? Well, my father always says, quotes, to thine own self be true. It's really hard to do sometimes, but really to... Um, stick to your guns and to listen to your inner voice and not be distracted by all the noise. What would you tell your 20 year old self? Life is a work of art and you're the artist and your life is for you to create. Do it and don't wait for someone else to tell you how to do it and don't blame other people if things aren't going right. This is your work. Laura Colder, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like yours to read? Oh, now or later? <laughs> yes. How would I like my life to read? 
Uh, I don't know what to say to that. I, at the end, I would like to say that I, I, I would like to be, um, I would like to be the, to become for myself and for everybody else, the oasis that people talked about. I would like to be able to be a place of perfect stability and calm for other people. I want my presence to be, to be that. So mm. that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's something I'm working on. In a complicated, divisive, fast-paced, wild world, Laura Colder served as an oasis of peace and bliss and a reminder that the best was yet to come. Laura, <laughs> I, I, I want to thank you for your cookbooks, for your shows, for your words, for your wisdom, and for your life. And I want to thank you for uh, giving us a recipe that we can apply in our own lives. Thank you, John. It's been a pleasure talking to you. My friends, that is Laura. My name is John. Today is your day. What a gift it is. Live it with bliss and live inspired. Well, my friends, does today's conversation make you want to have a dinner party or what? Now, Beth and I love hosting our friends, our family, our neighbors for a variety of events and dinner parties because it really allows us to connect with those others around that table at a deeper level. And now, thanks to our friend Laura, we have access to the most delectable and vetted tasting menus. Did you enjoy hearing from our chef today? Well, if you did, you'll love our conversation we had a couple months back with Master Chef winner Christine Ha. After losing her ability to see at age 20, Christine found meaning while pursuing her life's passion of cooking. It's a conversation about resilience about courage, about passion, and it will speak to your soul. You can listen to the conversation with Christine Ha at episode 342. And if you need a little bit of help finding it, cruise on over right now. Join me online at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. We'll have a link to it directly in the show notes. It's episode 342. I want to thank you for being seated around our Live Inspire table. And I want to thank you for believing like I do that the foundation is firm, the headwinds may be real, but the best is yet to come. So for this time and until next time, this is John O'Leary. Today is your day. What a gift. Don't miss it. Live Inspired. You know that Keeley Companies is all about fostering the world-class culture through their incredible cultural pillars. Well, it was time to add a seventh cultural pillar, Keeley Green. Guided by the mission to raise the sustainability standards by which they design, build, operate, and live, Keeley Green is dedicated to using a holistic approach to leave a positive impact on our environment, create a future that is sustainable for generations to come. In the words of Rusty Keeley, we are just getting started. You can learn more about that just getting started mentality and all the work they do by visiting my friends at Keeley Companies online at keeleycompanies.com.